Welcome to Alaska Black Caucus. Authentic, bold, committed. This program was supported by a grant awarded by the Municipality of Anchorage, Anchorage Health Department. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this publication, program, and exhibition are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Municipality of Anchorage, Anchorage Health Department. Good evening. I'm Jay Brown, the Executive Assistant and a member of the Alaska Black Caucus. Um, we are serving on the Health Committee, an organization that champions the lives of Black people in the areas of health, economics, justice, and education. Thank you for joining us for tonight's community conversation, community recovery, personal stories of loss, and recovery from COVID-19. Please remember that this conversation is being recorded for rebroadcast, so please keep yourselves on mute. If you have questions, use the chat, and we will try our best to get to them. After all, our panelists provide some introductory information. Please welcome tonight's moderator, Reverend Dr. Patricia Wilson-Cohn, who will introduce our panelists. Thank you. Thank you so very much, Ms. J. Brown, and good evening, good evening, good evening. The special thanks goes out always to Mrs. Celeste Hodge-Browning, Browning, the founder and director of the Alaska Black Caucus, and her awesome team uh, with the Alaska Black Caucus. If you have not joined, please join, join, join. It is a good place to be, a good place for learning, and we're so blessed and thankful that we still have the opportunity to meet here on Sunday evenings for one good hour, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m., to share and dialogue about these interesting community conversations. Tonight with us on the panel, and I'll have Ms. Dionne Woodward to introduce herself to you. Uh, we also have um, supposed to be showing up Dr. Philip Mendoza, but if not, then of course I'm gonna introduce myself at the end as the panel uh, moderator. So we'll now hear from Ms. Deanne Woodard. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for having me here and allowing me to join in the conversation this evening. Um, I am currently serving as the Associate Vice Provost for Targeted Programs and Populations at the University of Alaska at Anchorage. Um, I am also co-founder of Wilderness Adventures for Kids Everywhere Incorporated. Um, it is our nonprofit that serves youth in K-12, and we uh, provide mentorship throughout the academic year, summer camp experiences in the summers, and a scholarship opportunities for students when they're graduating from high school. And that's based here in Alaska. Um, and uh, I just want to say that I'm enjoying my time um, working with the caucus and serving as the program manager for the COVID-19 grant funding. So excited to be here. Thank you. And I look forward to sharing my story and experiences around COVID for my fiance, as well as um, my side of it as a caregiver. All right. Thank you so much, Ms. Woodard. And did Dr. Uh, Philip Mendoza, was he able to join us at all? Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm Reverend Dr. Patricia Wilson-Cohn. I'm a womanist theologian out here in the great Alaska. I'm the pastor of First American Baptist Church. I'm also an association clinical pastoral educator, certified educator, which merely means that I teach and educate chaplains, clergy persons, lay persons in the ministry, the importance of doing hospital ministry, the importance of meeting people where they are and not where we want them to be. Uh, and I'm the founder of Cone Spiritual Counseling Center, licensed out here in the state of Alaska, retired Lieutenant Colonel Chaplain, 
from the United States Army Chaplaincy Corps. So I have a heart for our veterans out here doing pastoral counseling with them and a heart for the BPOC community doing pastoral counseling with them. So for starters, we're just going to go ahead with Ms. Woodard, and she's going to first uh, share a very important story in her relationship to COVID-19 and her fiancé. Please hear her. We're so thankful again for, for Ms. J uh, being our uh, executive assistant of Alaska Black Caucus and here tonight to help us out. And we're also thankful for Ms. Allison Hurrigan, uh, she will be monitoring the chat this evening. So community persons that are joining us, feel free to put any questions or concerns in the chat, and Allison will chime in to share those with us. Okay, Ms. Woodard, please. All right, thank you so much. Um, first, let me start by saying that I live and work on the land of the Dinaina people um, here in Alaska. I want to take a moment to acknowledge that. And then I also want to acknowledge and, and, and pause uh, to recognize that all of us have had experience with COVID in some capacity, whether it was because we became ill ourselves, someone we know or love is close to us, um, had to fight with this disease um, during this pandemic. And if you've been one of the blessed ones who, and lucky ones who have not experienced COVID firsthand, you've been impacted by the domino effect of a pandemic hitting our world, not just our nation, but our world and our state. So you've had to wear a mask. You've not been allowed to go to functions. Um, you've seen all manner of restrictions placed as we tried to battle this uh, pandemic, um, which is the first for most of us in this era to experience something like this firsthand. So I do want to acknowledge that my story is just that. It's my story and it's my fiance's story. It may not be yours, um, but I do know talking with other folks, many people have experienced this story. So my fiance, um, Sean Jordan, got uh, COVID back in March of 2020. So this was when it was first hitting the U.S. broadly. It was before we knew very much about it. Um, he is a retired lieutenant colonel. He was traveling. At that time, he was still in active duty. And he was traveling, stationed at the Pentagon, back and forth to Europe from, uh, I guess, maybe around October of 2019 through the time that he returned in March um, after his last trip to England. He had been to Germany, to England, several places. Um, he was gone probably three weeks out of every month and um, traveling constantly. Never get sick, ever. Never get sick. And suddenly, headaches feeling bad, all of the initial symptoms, losing taste and smell, fever 104, um, thereby himself. I was not able to travel to him as we suspected. Um, he definitely seemed like he had COVID. By the time they tested him, there was no such thing at that time of the rapid test. So he had to wait. And it was over a week before he got test results back. In that time, he got progressively um, more and more sick. He could not keep anything down. Um, he could not breathe. He could not even climb the stairs to go to his bedroom to be able to go in his bathroom and shower even. So days had gone by before he could, before he ever could get a, uh, even a shower because he was there alone. At one point he'd gotten so sick and they called in medicine for him, but they wouldn't deliver it. 
So he had to drive 45 minutes to Fort Belvoir. Um, for those of you who don't know, Fort Belvoir is there in Alexandria, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. And as I mentioned, he was stationed at the Pentagon, but he had to drive himself 45 minutes to get to the hospital where he would pick up his prescriptions. When he got there, of course, they were not letting people in the hospital, so there was a line outside. The young lady took one look at him, saw that he did not look right, ran a test really quickly to see what his oxygen level was. His oxygen level was below 80%. She could not believe that he had even been able to drive himself to the hospital, had him parked. He came with nothing. He didn't have a charger other than in the car. He didn't have a bag. He didn't know he was going to be admitted. They admitted him immediately. That began a horrific journey. Um, he spent 10 days in ICU, praying that they would not intubate him because we already were hearing that people who were being intubated were dying. And it was a scary thing because he was in this room. And this is a military hospital. As I mentioned, he's a lieutenant colonel, so he's a senior officer. He's been in the military over 30 years, and no one would come in the room with him. They talked to him through a glass window. These are healthcare professionals who have studied all their lives to be able to provide services for the sick. Um, when they did enter the room, they were in full hazmat gear. They did not clean his room. They did not offer him a gown. They did not offer him anything to freshen himself up with, no towels, no washcloths, no soap, no anything. Remember, he was not planning to be there, so he didn't have a bag. And no one could bring him a bag because they didn't let anyone bring anything into the hospital. So about the sixth day, I was FaceTiming with him and got the nurse on the line and asked, can someone please give him some baby wipes, something so he can wash his face? And remember, he's been having fever every day. So he's sweating. He's in the original clothes he came there in. Um, and just miserable. Of course, you're miserable. And um, they didn't clean the bathroom. He can barely get to the bathroom. But when he did go, you know, they, they wouldn't come in and clean it. So days go by. The toilet is not, uh, nobody would want to sit on that toilet, you know. And just his overall treatment, his experience in there, the way they spoke to him, the way they spoke to me. Um, the implications that I was one of many that might be called to check on him, one of many females, um, because I wasn't his wife. I was his fiance. And so will we'll a different DM, would it be calling tomorrow? A nurse actually said that to us. Um, and I, when I tell you just this every single day, it was a struggle. Nurses not checking the records. So he's having to answer and he can barely talk every question every shift change because they don't read the chart. Um, just too afraid, called him on his cell phone. The phone in the room wasn't working, so they're calling him on his cell phone, telling him to pick up his cell phone, but he doesn't have a charger. So we're worried he's not going to, you know, when the phone dies, how am I going to be able to communicate with him? Did not read his records. He has sleep apnea. He um, requires a CPAP machine. So for those that don't know what that is, that means when you sleep, you stop breathing. And usually it's accepted, matched with excessive snoring. So that snoring is sometimes what wakes, will wake you up, but it will cause you to stop breathing. So he coded four different times and they thought he had died or they were waiting for him to die. And turns out just before they were about to intubate him, a respiratory therapist just ask the question, did anyone ask this guy if he has 
sleep apnea. And just by chance did they discover that that's what it was. He wasn't stopping breathing because of the COVID. It was sleep apnea. So I tell this story because it took him to finally get into, um, I guess maybe around the seventh or eighth day, he got into combat mode. Um, His PTSD was through the roof. Um, He didn't trust anyone in the hospital. There were several misdiagnoses. Um, And his system was shutting down. His liver was not functioning properly. He was um, urinating and defecating blood. His his skin was gray. He's very dark skinned, but his skin was ashen. It was gray. Um, and, And he could not walk to the bathroom. He couldn't breathe. He sat in a chair the entire 10 days. He would not lay down flat. And that's probably the only thing that saved his life is because he stayed prone. And he fought and he fought hard and he brought attention to all of the disparities that were going on in the hospital. And he would tell them, you know, if you're treating me like this as a senior office, what about the service members who are first airmen, privates, who don't have any fire, who don't have anyone to speak for them? And he asked to speak with the hospital administrator, he told his story. Then went on and reported because nothing was being done, reported it up the chain into the U.S. Uh, Surgeon General's office. And only then did they send down a one-star general via helicopter to come in and meet with him. And this young lady um, was a former um, doctor who worked when the AIDS pandemic ep- epidemic first erupted and had to work with AIDS patients. So she had to put on all the gear, but she came in the room and sat down and just talked to him, find out his story. And she said, you know, sir, I'm so glad that you shared your story because this is happening not only in military hospitals. That's why she was there to fix the problem. But they didn't have anyone who would speak up and tell the story. She says, this is going to help us to make some changes. But this is happening in the public sector as well. And it's happening too often that our um, patients of color are not being cared for in a manner that is consistent with their needs or as a priority. And so I just I wanted to share that he was able to get that story told up the chain, help them to begin having those dialogues around how do we make systematic change that is going to be felt by our patients of color, um, where they begin to feel valued and their and their healthcare is not just brushed aside. I can pause there. The second half of my story centers around the long COVID and how long it took, has taken him to recover. So I'm happy to pause there, though, if there are any comments or questions in the chat or shared stories. Thank you so much, Ms. And, you know, she says some very important perks here tonight, audience. She listened. She cared. She was an advocate for her fiance. Those are key words. Storytelling and story listening are parts of the survival of any community, but definitely the pop community. Well, Ms. Woodard, could you say more about what you learned from the experience and how did it change you and the work you've been called to do today? Thank you. Yes. Well, for me, it helped me to realize even more uh, how important it is for everyone to have someone, um, if it's a friend, if it's a neighbor, if, if, if it's a loved one, someone close to you who knows your story, 
when you have to seek care, particularly when you have to be admitted to a hospital, especially in these times around the pandemic when you are not always allowed to have someone go with you to the hospital. It's important to have um, those people's names and contact information communicated to the healthcare uh, providers who are there, the nurses, the doctors, and give consent for your health to be discussed with that person. Um, and then they need to clearly advocate for you, ask the questions, um, pay attention, watch their face. If you can FaceTime with them, FaceTime with them if you can't be in the room. Um, ask them to charge to their phones. You know, um, they can do that for a patient. That's that's not a big deal if they don't have them. Ask what kind of care package can be brought to the hospital to support your loved one or your friend or whoever you are, are helping that's going through this process. I learned that if we don't speak up, they will do anything. Not trying to suggest that all healthcare is bad by any means. There, are, I've had some good experiences, but I've also had some shady ones um, with between the birth of my five children. Every experience was a little different. Um, and, and when you have to be, and I had high risk pregnancies, so having to be in the hospital for a little longer, you, you experience different things. But as it relates to COVID, I just, I highly recommend one that we, we not sleep on it. We don't think we're out of the woods, uh, because we're not. COVID's not going anywhere. Um, we don't necessarily, um, if CDC is showing and, and uh, we're getting closer and closer to herd immunity where it's, beginning to um, act more like uh, the flu uh, did before the flu vaccine came out. That's fine. We're moving in that direction, but don't fall asleep on it because it mutates and you just never know. So continue to be hyper vigilant, ask your questions, be supportive, talk to your loved ones um, and pay attention to the signs that if anything is, is amiss, especially if they are in the hospital. If something doesn't sound right, don't be afraid to speak up and, and ask questions and demand answers. That is very important. Community tonight, ask questions. Most of us grew up with this uh, adage that no question is, too, is a dumb question. No question is too large. No question is too small. We must use the gift of the voice and ask pertinent questions. And you've heard me say this on this forum before. Please, please, if you have not formulated and signed a living will, please, this is the time to do it. Everybody, in my teaching, in my pastoral counseling, I emphasize, do you have a living will? What is a living will? You can get it from your medical doctors, your various communities. You can go to the local hospitals and ask for a copy of a living will. It's like an advanced directive, actually, where you will sign it and you will indicate, do you want to be on life support? Do you not want to be on life support? Do you want to be fed, you know, intravenously is basically what you're answering. If you become brain dead and you know in the BPOP community, many of us still say things like, oh, God is going to take care of me. Please mute yourselves if you're not talking. I'm hearing a little something in the background. I don't. So, um, uh, yes, we, we, we in the BPOC community, we go to God or the higher power in our lives and we say, oh, I know God is going to heal. God is going to take care of me. As a pastor, as an ordained clergywoman, I certainly have faith that God still is a miracle working God in all of our lives. 
But God also works in the doctor's team, the medical team, and we need to take seriously the importance of signing the advanced directives or the living will, whichever it is called, so that loved ones will know what to do when we become sick, when we can't make decisions for our own lives. This is not something we should want the family to have to decide. It's all of our responsibilities to decide what's good for our lives. Do it for your children. You know, when they're born, we have these um, lovely celebrations. We have birthday parties. But nobody says, you know, my child is 12, 15, 10. It's time to talk to them about do they want to be cremated or do they want to have a big funeral in a church in a casket? These are real life situations. COVID, people are still dying. Loved ones are still being hospitalized. It is our responsibility to use our voice to face reality and to do something about it. Thank you again for, for sharing with us. And another question, how does the lack of cultural competency and cultural humility impacts the care given to the BPOC community? This is very important. Ms. Woodard, do you have something? And I don't know if the doctor is joining us or not, but Ms. Woodard, you're doing a great job, so help us with that. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, um, I, I think that's very true. Um, something as simple as um, in one of our earlier community conversations, the presenter, um, he's a medical student, he talked about how the medical community trains um, the upcoming professionals, doctors, nurses, et cetera. And we gave an example of a traditional way of, of identifying a particular um, um, illness or disease was based on the colors. If you, the skin turns blue in certain areas, you would be able to tell um, that this person has whatever that disease was that they were um, using in the, in the example. And he said that he raised his hand. He was the only black student in the class and he's very dark skinned. And he raised his hand. He said, so how would I tell that on a black person whose skin, whose, um, whose, uh, melanin is dark? So, uh, and, and how would we tell we can't see blue <laughs> on, on a person with dark skin? And the, do the doctor, the instructor, his faculty had no answer for him. He said, that's a good point. I guess we have to try to find another way to identify this disease. And it is glaring how in medical education, in nursing, healthcare in general, oftentimes those types of things are not even considered because of the history of medicine. And it was never designed to address medical needs of the BIPOC community it was designed in the father of, of uh, much of the uh, modern medicine. It was all designed to how to better serve our Caucasian um, brethren. And so with that in mind, um, it's no wonder that there can be a, a lack of cultural competency amongst healthcare um, professionals. They just simply haven't been trained in many cases. They don't know what they don't know sometimes. But um, I think it is incumbent upon them as medical professionals and supporting the BIPOC community to make themselves as aware as possible to understand that, no, Black women don't have a higher tolerance of for pain. Uh, we, we feel pain in very much the same way as any other human being. And as with any other human being, some people, regardless of 
their culture or race feel pain differently. They have a daughter. I have a daughter who has extremely high tolerance of pain. And I have one that if she just nicked her finger, you'd think it just about got cut off. So it, it just depends on the person, not the cultural background. Yes, I resonate with you. And, you know, as you're going to the doctors and we know COVID is still on the rise in the country, let's be sensitive to not being shamed when we go to the doctors or our medical professionals to talk about our health. Pain is is a part of, of survival. Some of us have low pain tolerance. Some of us have high pain tolerance. But it's nothing to be ashamed about to go to your doctor and say, you know, I've got a pain here or my face is breaking out or my arm pits. Something is going on with my body. And to talk about that. You know, Brene Brown is the great licensed social worker today, writing all these wonderful books about, you know, shame and Atlas of the Heart. I think she's had a uh, something on HBO Max this week. And, you know, she emphasizes the importance, people, that shame is what, you know, something is wrong with me. You know, guilt, I must have done something. And then vulnerability, the, one of the latest words that we've been using. Vulnerability, my friends, is not that you and I are weak. Vulnerability is courage. You're using your courage to give voice to what's going on with your mind, your body, your soul, your spirit. Um, do what you feel is healthy for you. I still have on my mask at church. I had to preach today and I'm up there and I unmask when it's time for me to get up and say something and I mask back up. You know, regardless of what the system and the country is saying, it's your health. What are you comfortable with when it comes to contracting COVID? What are you comfortable with in our still COVID community? It's only one of you. We live in a community but Naim Akbar, a great uh, African-American psychiatrist in uh, Tallahassee, Florida, says we need one another. And we do. We need to come together like we have this forum tonight to talk about our health, to talk, to still have an honest and open conversation about COVID. So so please, please have a voice. Pay attention, as Ms. Woodard has said, when loved ones are being hospitalized with covid Try your best to FaceTime. You know, if you don't have a little iPad or laptop, you know, try to get a phone. And maybe this is a way the community can help. If someone came to my church or just saw me in the community, you know, saying, Pastor, my loved one is in the hospital. I don't even have a phone. If we can come together to do some basic things in the BPOC community to help connect with the loved one with COVID, that may be our calling during these unprecedented times. We've got to learn the importance of sticking together, not going against one another, but coming together saying, what can we as a community do to help this woman or this man or this human being with their loved one who's in the hospital in our communities to, so that they will have some way to connect? So Ms. Woodard shared how she paid attention to what her fiance was saying. She listened to him. She FaceTimed him. She talked about was an advocate for him getting a phone. Uh, said she said we could share uh, care packages or whatever. We could be the the care providers. You know, in the hospital today, you know, a lot of immediate family members are the only ones there admitting, and it's that one immediate family member still. 
and they want to know one of the questions. I have a member in the hospital as we speak, and they were saying, okay, you are who, and what are you doing here? And I'm like, I'm her pastor. And, you know, her sister took the initiative to make sure my name was in the record, you know, is understood that I'm going to stop by. If it's only 15 minutes to pray with this person, to talk to them, to give hope. And people want to tell their stories. We from the BPOC community, we have survived today, audience, from storytelling and from story listening. We are oral, traditional people, and we know it's our stories that has empowered and enlightened us to get where we are today, and we need to continue uh, with that. So I do understand. I don't know uh, uh, <clears throat> if we have anything in the chat uh, Miss um, <clears throat> Allison Corrigan, do we have anything in the chat that we need to give some attention to now? Yeah, I'll, I'll share a couple of comments from the chat. Um, so Celeste had written that her dad, who is 88 years old, didn't have COVID, but received similar care as um, Deanne was describing when he was admitted. Um, she was constantly advocating for him, and her dad eventually asked to stop out of fear um, that this would that this would cause him even more harm. Um, so wanted to share that experience. And then we also had a comment here that Alaska um, Legislative Rep Vance has a bill drafted that would allow patients to have a personal representative present in the hospital to serve in that role as an advocate um, as an advocate for their loved one and. Um, I can absolutely um, appreciate the value in that and um, mm -hmm. wanted to draw attention. Thank you so much, Allison. So continue sending uh, some information to the chat and we'll pause for Allison to share that with us as we continue. Uh, Ms. Woodard, you said you had another story that you would like to, to share with us, please. Yes, um, this is the long COVID story, if you will. There's so many patients, so many people that whether they had mild symptoms or really symptoms, um, it's the story that's hardest to capture because some of the symptoms may or may not be able to be linked directly to COVID um, because there's still so much we're learning. But what I witnessed was months, 18 months after first contracting COVID, um, it took that long before he could really um, walk for any length of time without breathing hard. Um, he's still, and it's been two years, over two years now, um, going upstairs and long walks are, are challenging, um, hard to breathe, um, having to catch breath, you know. Um, and we have so many underlying conditions just oftentimes in the BIPOC community that are hereditary that just with COVID, they were, those things could be exacerbated. Continue to see a lot of other uh, things that he suffered with from his heart uh, being a little enlarged and problems with the liver, um, problems with um, the rectal and um, urinary uh, blood and blood in the urine and in uh, when defecating. So, you know, those kinds of things just take a long time to overcome. And we hear so many stories about people who maybe, you know, they weren't struggling as much initially, but over time, things, they began to see that, that disease really did attack many organs. It attacks the brain, it attacks the heart, the lungs, the liver, the kidneys, 
um, it just really ravages through the body. And sometimes we don't see the symptoms right away. And sometimes it's down the road. But it's important to note that we still have to pay attention to those symptoms. We have to go to the doctor when we have them, especially if you had COVID. It's important to point that point out anything that doesn't feel right, that you should be aware of your own body and what your body is telling you. Um, it will give you signs. So you have to listen to them and seek out medical professional help. Go to the doctor, tell them what's going on, tell them you had COVID at some point, if you did, you know, and, and have those discussions so that you can really get a handle on what, what may be going on with your body. Your, your doctors cannot help you if you just make the assumption, well, it'll pass, it'll, it'll be okay. You know, don't wait. In the BIPOC community, we have a really bad habit of not going to the doctor um, when we feel ill or something's wrong. And we have to break that, that uh, cycle of not going. Um, oftentimes, many things can be prevented or at least uh, mitigated if we would go to the doctor early enough. And if, you, if you're at the point where it's so bad that you barely can get to the doctor, it may be too late. So we want to, I just want to encourage everyone that, you know, pay attention. Long COVID is real. Um, it is not a brand new thing. You know, the, if you're, if you're suddenly um, having trouble with something that you never you didn't have pre-COVID, but you had COVID and something popped up, go ahead and look at And it doesn't matter how small it is or how minor you might think it is, it's best to get it diagnosed and on the books because it could progress and you want to make sure that you document it from the first time that you're experiencing it so that your healthcare uh, provider can work with you to to find a solution and help you through that issue, whatever that might be. Yes, indeed, Ms. Woodard. Uh, Go to the doctor. We can't overemphasize that tonight, community. Please, uh, men, men, get your checkups. Uh, colon cancer is real. Breast cancer is real for men and for women. So get your checkups, your annual checkups. So if something is going wrong, I mean, she mentioned that her um, fiance had some heart challenges for the long term, some liver challenges, urinary area, uh, how it attacked his organs, you know, his brain, his lungs. It's important that we know our bodies. And again, that word shame. Don't be ashamed to tell your partner, your wife, your husband, your the human relationship that you are in. Please have a trusting relationship to share with them. This is what's going on with me. Or, or, or and we know Celeste was going back and forth to take care of her father. I'm sure he had to share stories with his daughter. Perhaps he didn't want to share. I mean, with my own grandfather who had uh, cancer, colon cancer, and I didn't even know it until years later. But, you know, I could tell he was shamed to come and share with his granddaughter, you know, what was going on with him in that part of his body. But you, it's important that we build these relationships where we can trust each other enough to be vulnerable again, to share the story and to put the shame aside and say, wait a minute, I need help. There's, there's a poem that I used in its title, We Need One Another. When we would come to die, we would want someone to hold our hands. We need one another. When it's time to celebrate, we want someone to hold our hands and celebrate with us. We need one another. When it's time to 
be sick. You know, Ecclesiastes tells us the third chapter, there's a time for everything. We're going to be sick some days. You know, every day is not our best day. So how do we hold up our heads and say, I'm not feeling well today. I got this headache or something going on with my heart or there's a pain in my side or my back so that the one that you confide in, the one that you love, the one that you have this trusting relationship with of intimacy and love and understanding, they can help be an advocate for you, driving you to the doctor's office, helping to take care of you. You know, the theme tonight is really looking at uh, recovery, personal stories of recovery and loss from COVID. There are all kinds of losses in our lives and we have all kinds of stories with this COVID experience. It's a loss just talking about it and realizing we've had losses in the community, losses on our jobs, losses in the church from loved ones with COVID. A family member is missing. They're not the same. But how do we embrace them? How do we love them? How do we meet them where they are with their stories? And listen, listen, listen. People are hungry for someone to listen to them. And people are hungry for someone or some place to tell the story. So know your body. Uh, she emphasized the importance of of the signs that occur in the body. Be aware of that. Listen to your body and tell the doctor your story. When you go to that doctor, if they say, oh, we checked everything and you are okay, you have, it's your body, and I call it personal authority. You have the personal authority to say, doc, something is wrong here. Is there another doctor in the house for me to see? You've got to be adamant about your body. You know your body better than anybody else out here tonight. Miss Woodard, I see you have unmiked yourself. What else do you care to share with us, please? Yes, I just wanted to add on to what you were saying about um, advocating for yourself. My dad, my mom and my dad are 88 years old as well. And um, they they go to their doctor and they listen to their doctor, but they've had more than a few occasions when uh, a surgery or something really um, extreme was recommended for them uh, to have done for something that we weren't convinced would need to be surgery. And um, their first inclination was whatever the doctor says, that's what we need to do because in our community, we are taught that, you know, they are the experts and we had to, um, help them to understand that, uh, they are entitled. And matter of fact, it is in their best interest to get second opinions if anybody says they need to cut on you or have surgery because it is a very serious decision. And the older you are, and then sometimes with the culture that you are from and what, what underlying um, conditions you may have, you have to think long and hard and find out and, and advocate for yourself again. I say that again to see if there is another alternative to surgery because it is so extreme, especially when they get older. My dad adopted the um, habit of, of telling anyone who would listen, his brothers, his sisters, um, you know, all seniors. And he would tell them, look, these doctors, well, they call it practicing medicine for a reason. They are human. They are not perfect. They don't know everything. So it would be in your best interest to recognize that they are practicing 
and you need a second opinion on anything that's major or significant, even if it's just for good measure, even if it's just to see if you get the two same diagnoses or whatever the case may be, but um, making sure that you, you do listen and you communicate and you ask questions and do your homework, research it for yourself. And if you don't have a way, or if, if it's someone who's elderly or a senior who may be not may not be able to really research this stuff for their own because they just don't understand, um, help someone. Ask, encourage them to talk to their granddaughter or grandson or to their child or to um, a friend or someone at the church, their pastor perhaps, or um, someone else in the community that they work with. Tell them what they said. Don't be afraid and don't be ashamed. As, um, as you said earlier, just... Ask questions. You've got to do your own research and you have to speak for yourself. Very true. Very true. You are so right. And uh, when you said something about, you know, ask your pastor, uh, I have my uh, congregation. We are a small group of people. And one of my mottos is we're a little piece of leather, but we're well put together because I've got persons as old as 92 in the church. And then I got a youth department and they are like in middle school. But every Sunday I make it a point to go to my elders in the church. How you doing? How was this week? I want to know, did they keep their doctor's appointment? One lady, she has to go be on dialysis three or four times a week. How was dialysis this week? You know, if I hear them lifting up particular prayer concerns about their body and their health, you know, or if a loved one has COVID or they, I want to know, did you take your booster shot yet? You know, how you been feeling? And this is one of the things we can do in the spiritual community, you know, not just meet and preach and teach and all the clergy here doing that great work that God has called us to do. But we've got to be too more intentional with our congregations and congregants and parishioners to really seek. How are you doing? Did Are you taking your medicine? Do you have a care provider? All of these are good preventive measures to help the BPOC community. So thank you for lifting that up. Uh, I certainly want to talk a little bit about our children and losses and their stories. Uh, Ms. Woodard, do you have anything, you know, pertaining to what what is in place for children after COVID in terms of their recovery? For example, children who lost parents or who had to stay home without support of education. So what needs to be in place for our children? And then I'll speak to it from a spiritual perspective as well. Thank you. Yeah, you know, the stories are, are endless of young people who have lost their, their loved ones, whether it was a parent, a sibling, an uncle, an aunt, um, a friend even in some cases. And I don't think anybody really knew how to support the level of grief that our communities experience, and in particular, children. Um, they, the children are not equipped to deal with in general, um, in my because it is such a, a concept and, and such loss and such hurt. And they are still learning how to express themselves with everyday emotions, let alone the trauma of uh, losing someone they love to death. And I, you know, I know there are some communities in some areas that have paid attention to the youth and provided support services, whether it was through their schools or through a church or through a community group or big brothers and big brothers and big sisters and other similar programs, YWCA, YMCA, um, try to take those things into consideration where they can. But how do you truly support a child in the midst of a pandemic that they can't even go to school? I'll use Anchor School District, for example. 
we're working with them through our early college programs. We would be in the classrooms in the schools um, every day with students. And if there was something going on with a student, they felt suicidal, they were depressed, their demeanor changed, their behavior changed. Multiple people could witness that from teachers that as we get to know our students, right, we recognize that someone's having a bad day or if it's extending longer, we see these signs, right? But that's when they are in school. And then and everyone was working from home, uh, going to the classes from home, and teachers didn't see their students like that. It's harder to pick up on those kind of cues on a video screen. And so while the numbers in the district seem to go down for suicide referrals or concerns um, around that, giving a false sense that things were better during the pandemic, no, what we discovered in talking with counselors and talking with uh, teachers and faculty at the college. Um, but, you know, it wasn't a matter of those numbers going down so much as they just weren't being reported now because teachers and counselors aren't seeing the effects. Um, we know that children had to be home during the pandemic. So not only did they suffer with loss in some cases of a loved one uh, to COVID, but some were placed in situations where they had to deal with domestic violence or um, food insecurity or, um, isolation or a household where there were, you know, four kids or and two adults that all have to use one computer because that's all they have in the house. And if they have that and if they have a stable internet connection, but still being held accountable for their education, it has been traumatic on our youth and on our children through this pandemic, whether it is that they lost someone to COVID or they just had to go through all of the isolation. You know, it was interesting. We were having a conversation with some seniors um, who were graduating last year. They were seniors from last year. They didn't get to have a prom. They didn't get to have homecoming. They didn't get to experience all of the things that they've gone through school to get to that senior year and have all those wonderful senior experiences um, because of COVID. And it makes you recognize that there's a whole generation of young people who are going to be formed and their perspectives in, um, impressed upon because of their experiences with this pandemic. And it will change the shape of our future um, in so many ways. And, you know, I think about the babies that were born during the pandemic who have never known the world without COVID in it. So all of these things um, play into how we as a community should be seeking to support our youth. I, I just don't feel like we do enough, but I think it's important to have a conversation so that we can discover what groups are doing something. And if they're not enough, then what more can we do? Absolutely. That is good information, community, tonight. And a, a little more I wish to share regarding our children and death and dying, especially the parents uh, that died of COVID. You've got to tell the children the truth. Because you don't want them thinking, oh, I did something. That's why mommy or daddy died. They left me because I was bad or I did something wrong. So tell the children the truth about death and dying. If you need to talk to a pastoral counselor or take them to therapy to get you some guidance and help, do that. You want children to be able to talk about their feelings. Help them to name, I feel sad. I feel lonely, alone. I'm angry. God took mommy. Why would God do that? So the child grows up with this 
you know, uh, just incongruent uh, experience of God and, and the love for the child. So tell the truth that mommy got sick. We took mommy or daddy or the loved one to the hospital and they died. Uh, they're not going to come and be here with you, but I'm going to be with you or grandparents or aunties or uncles. You know, we'll, we'll be here for you to help you continue to grow up and make it through school and, and talk, let them talk about those feelings. They've got to get the feelings out of them and to help them to name what's going on inside of them. And a lot of parents say, oh, I'm not going to take my child to the funeral. Well, uh, research in grief and counseling said, has shared this with us. At least talk to the child and perhaps give an example that if you go to the funeral, you're going to see mom, dad, or sister, or brother, or loved one in this lovely box. They're going to have be dressed up. The funeral director is going to have them looking all pretty. And this will be a way for you to say goodbye to mommy, daddy, or the loved one that has been with us in this family and has helped you. You're going to give them, you're going to prep them for it. And if you can't do that work, because it's nowhere in writing that says you have to be the qualified one to do it. That's why God has created pastoral counselors, social workers, uh, psychiatrists, and therapists to help us with this part of loss. Because loss is real, people, and we as a BPOC community, we must become honest and open when it comes to death and dying of loved ones. So let's continue to figure out how to tell the truth to our children, how to help them name their feelings, how to help them to release that the loved one didn't die because the child did something wrong, you know, but creative ways of setting each other free in healthy and holistic uh, and human ways for that child to continue to survive. Um, I know we're about, what, seven minutes out of time. Uh, so uh, 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 I want to check to see if Allison Hurrigan has anything else in the chat that we perhaps need to look at tonight uh, with... Um, Ms. Dion Woodard and myself here tonight in sharing with all of you uh, this community recovery. Uh, again, thank you, Ms. Woodard, for sharing your personal story about yourself and about your fiance. Thank you so much. And thank you, community, for joining in with chatting regarding recovery and loss from COVID. Thank you for being attentive to us tonight. Thank you, Ms. Jay Brown. Can't say thank you enough to Ms. Mrs. Celeste Hodge Groudon and even for sharing the experience of your father who didn't have COVID, but you certainly took the responsibility to travel back and forth uh, and to let the community know. So figure out if you need to leave the state of Alaska to be with a loved one to do the best you can, do that. All we have is one life to live on this earth. And I tell everybody, live it to the fullest. You just got one life to live. Let's live in love. Let's live in harmony. Let's live in peace. I was talking to a friend earlier, let's, as BPOC community, let's look at our jealousy, you know, feeling like uh, the person that uh, God or a higher light or power has given you to love, and you're so afraid that someone is going to take that person from you that you don't focus on the good of the relationship that you have with the person. Let's look at envy in the relationships, you know, that you're just envious 
of Miss Woodard because how she wear her hair, how she wear her makeup. She hasn't done a thing to you, but you just envious and going to say negative things about her or these other beautiful women and men of color on the screen tonight. And then there's greed, trying to scoop the good out of a person for your good without realizing there's enough to go around. I believe in God, so if God can give it to me, I know God can give you and give you more, but do you need to work for it? Yes. Do you need to take responsibility? Yes. Do you need to do your part? Yes. And as a community of people, we all experience loss differently, but loss is real. So how can we continue to come together in these types of forums to talk about COVID, to talk about the losses, but to give each other some hope and some understanding? So Allison, uh, and Jay, yeah. what do y'all have to say before we close, as we're closing out tonight? Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. You, um, it's just such a pleasure to be here and to um, thank you for sharing your stories. I wanted to share a study, actually, that just came out yesterday. Um, this was a study of about 2,000 adults in the UK who were hospitalized with COVID-19, and the researchers followed up with them five months and a year after they were discharged from the hospital. Um, the patients in this study reported kind of self-reported symptoms, and then they also measured um, their physical performance and organ function. And so kind of speaking to Deanne's point and, um, and what's been shared tonight about taking away um, shame when you're talking about this and not having stigma around what you're experiencing, um, 10 common symptoms that were persistent in about two-thirds of people one year after being discharged from the hospital for COVID-19 and these included things like fatigue, muscle ache, poor sleep, breathlessness, joint pain and swelling, slow thinking, short-term memory loss, and limb weakness. Um, and, and so I just wanted to say that these things are common, unfortunately. Currently, we don't have specific therapies for these symptoms. There's a lot of folks working on it. Um, but just wanted to say that we still know that the vaccine is the most highly effective way to protect against severe illness including hospitalization. And so um, just wanting to put a plug in there for that. And again, uh, thank you so much, Deanne, for sharing your fiance's story. And um, thank you to everyone for being here tonight. Amen. Thank you so much, Ms. Allison Hurrigan. Uh, Jay, you have some closing words or does Mrs. Celeste Hodge-Rowden have any other words or, or sharing for us tonight before we close out? Um, again, thank you to our program participants and, of course, for you joining us this evening. We also want to thank our caucus members and allies for Change Group for their continuous support. If you'd like to join our great organization or link to the Allies for Change group within the Alaska Black Caucus, please visit the AlaskaBlackCaucus.com. We would like to thank the Municipality of Anchorage. This program was supported by a grant awarded by the Municipality of Anchorage, Anchorage Health Department. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this publication, program, and exhibition are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Municipality of Anchorage, Anchorage Health Department. Additionally, the views and opinions expressed by participants are their own and do not represent the institutions or organizations they're associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless clearly stated. Be sure to join us here next Sunday for a community conversation, No Place for Hate, a conversation with Anchorage young people. Until next time, good night, everyone. Alaska Black Caucus, authentic, 
Hope.